Welcome to the 10th episode of Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. This week, I'm joined by two outstanding gentlemen from the sales desk. First, I'd like to welcome Peter Klebb to his first appearance on the show. Pete heads up our London rate sales effort. And I'd like to welcome back Austin Darris for a second appearance. Austin is one of two Boston-based fixed income salespeople at BMO. This week's episode is titled Vaccination Spreads. I'm Ben Reitzis, and welcome to Views from the North. Each episode, I will be joined by members of BMO's FIC Sales and Trading Desk to bring you perspectives on the Canadian rates market and the macro economy. We strive to keep this show as interactive as possible by responding directly to questions submitted by our listeners and clients. We value your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out with any topics you'd like to hear about. I can be found on Bloomberg or via email at benjamin.reitzis at bmo.com. That's benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. Your input is valued and greatly appreciated. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Both Pete and Austin have expertise in a variety of fixed income products and multiple currencies, though we're going to keep the focus on Canada today. When Austin was last on the show, he strongly advocated for investors to get long Cora, which was trading in the mid to low 20s at the time. His call was right on. As the increasing shortage of collateral and persistent excess of cash pulled Cora sharply lower earlier this year. He was also a bit early on the micro-cut speculation, which was a hot topic heading into the January Bank of Canada meeting, but of course that didn't come to fruition. I'm sure both Pete and Austin will be ahead of the curve in this episode as well. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Ben. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm honored that I was invited back. Well, you got it right. So if you get something wrong, that means that you don't get invited back. That's all. <laughs> no pressure. So there's a few topics I'd like to cover with you guys this week. They include swap spreads, Canada-US cross-market spreads, and the impact of the pace of vaccinations on the macro outlook. We're going to start at swap spreads. I know both of you like to talk about spreads, so I think that's a great place to start. I think we're all similarly aligned here. We have put out a number of trade recommendations on swap spreads, and I guess I'm kind of ruining the punchline here, but... You know what? I, I think I'd like to ask Pete to go first here and then maybe Austin can play devil's advocate so we can get both sides of the trade and, and maybe where the risks are and, and where we might be wrong in our thoughts. Pete, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, absolutely, Ben. Thank you very much. Uh, pleasure to be here. So on the on the swap spreads, as you said, we've taken a few stabs at this over the last couple of weeks, and I think there's maybe a little bit of consensus on our side, but I'm interested to hear Austin's side of things as well. I come at this one from thinking swap spreads are a bit too high. would like to start building a short position in it. And for me, it's really a story of 2020 versus 2021. Uh, like why we are where we are in swap spreads kind of for me informs why I think they can come back down. So just sort of big picture you know, keep it simple. There was too much cash in 2020 in the banks. QE, everybody, the central banks were making sure there was an excess amount of liquidity in the markets, as you want to do during a crisis, times of uncertainty. Again, investor appetite gets conservative. That cash gets parked in the front end of the market. And you don't have to look any further than the money markets to understand that with the, the desks across the street building barricades to protect themselves from the cash getting thrown at them. So all that cash has to go somewhere. And, it, and, and for the bank treasuries, it goes to buy assets. And so that's what they did in 2020. They they bought a lot of assets and they, and they asset swapped them, which drove the swap spreads up to what you have to say is crisis levels. If you go back and look at the five-year swap spreads, 
I mean, you, you, you've got to, you've got to come to credit crises. You've got to come to oil crashes. You've got to come to turn events where CETA or OIS was blown out to get to these same level and outright spreads, at least in the five-year space. So we, we are quite extended from a location point of view, which is one way you want to look at things, I think. From the flow point of view, we can sort of understand why we got here with the banks having all this excess of cash. And then you think to yourself, well, what's going to cause this to turn around? And as we look forward to 2021, you're going to touch a little bit around the end about the vaccination, I think, and the outlook on the cross-border. But you have to think that there's not going to be the same level of QE, the same level of emergency funds flooding the market in 2021 that we saw in 2020. So the knockdown for that is maybe less cash sitting at the banks needing to find a home. And so less buying of assets and asset swapping on the back of that. And as you look at the CDROS spread that I mentioned, uh, that was a hot topic a bit ago as well. That's at you know some pretty low levels historically as well. And the spread between CEDA OIS, which is another way of saying your carry on an asset swap position, and the assets and the swap spreads themselves, that's at a historic wide. So you you basically have eliminated all the carry in a long asset swap position. It's been driven to pretty historical outright levels, and the flows that I think have driven us to these points are likely to be ebbing into 2021, especially if we get that that recovery that people are expecting from economies reopening and, you know, cash finds a different place to go. So that's, you know, sort of the high level for me, just looking at the basic flows, it seems extended. And, and I think it's time to start building a short position. All right. Good, good points, Pete. I'm, I'm going to add one thing to that. I think that it's important to take into account the likelihood of coming tapering from the Bank of Canada. We are expecting them to taper their QE program starting in April. So I think they take it down from $4 billion in purchases per week to $3 billion in purchases per week. And the cuts are going to come, the tapering is going to come in the two-year and five-year sectors. Uh, I think they probably keep their 10-year and long bond purchases more or less as is. Maybe they shrink those a tad, but the bigger cuts are going to come in twos and fives. And so Again, if, if, if they're buying less of those securities, less in those sectors, that provides a little bit less support for the cash market in, in those two sectors as well. And that contributes to, to potentially narrowing of uh, swap spreads from, from clearly currently very rich levels. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, Ben. They had a chance in January. So one of the issues that the Bank of Canada had at the end of the year is, is too much liquidity driving the market rates away from target, right? That was where that micro cut you mentioned came from. The proverbial, if the mountain won't come to Muhammad, Muhammad must go to the mountain. So should we lower the target rate because the market's not trading there? They didn't do it because you know the recognition is that actually we have the opposite problem. There's not enough collateral. There's too much liquidity. So that, that was a signal for me from them, the direction of travel, exactly as you say, that they're, they're going to want to start sopping up some of that cash as we start turning the corner, hopefully. Okay, Austin, what's the other side? Why are we wrong on this? So just to start, I'm playing a role here. I probably agree more with the short or being sold on spreads story more than the being paid in spreads. But the big reason why I'm going to defend or how I'm going to defend being paid in spreads is that really nothing's changed. And there's no impetus for spreads to crack outside of some earlier or larger taper than expected. The fact is we're going into seasonal widening months for swap spreads for what that's worth. March is historically the second best month for spread widening in the year, second only to December, which is usually driven by CEDAR widening. And we're doing that with 
the border like mostly closed. And so immigration's at lows. If if we can get a vaccine rollout earlier or faster or anything, and we get a, a tailwind from even a hotter housing market, which is clearly just being driven by domestic housing right now, then the paying from banks that we're seeing, which is ongoing, should maybe even pick up steam. I think the only thing that probably makes that bid for housing and that paying slow is if rates can materially rise, which we really haven't seen yet, but that could be one thing to watch out for. The other thing that's important is that there's a few big negatives that are already baked into spreads and why they're so wide. Cora, like we've mentioned, has risen. The bank went from a micro cut, which everybody was talking about, to an even more micro hike. When Cora is now fixing at 20, where is Cora going? When are rate hikes coming. And that's one of the things that could weigh on them. CDOIS is already super depressed. Our desk would rather pay it than sell that anymore. It's resting up against historical tights. And that's one of the things that could support the carry profile. I agree, Pete, that it does weigh on it in the short term. But if we can stabilize, a bid to CDOIS should support belly spreads. They're rich for sure. They do have scope to go a little bit higher on a constant maturity basis. We can go another three to four basis points to reach even wider levels that we've seen in the past. And the last thing is, is that they've actually, when you look at a little bit further out on the spread curve, because I'm more talking about five-year spreads, but if you look at spreads cross-market versus the US, US spreads have widened fairly substantially versus Canada spreads. If you look at TY invoice versus CN invoice, there's almost seven basis points of spread tightening where TY is actually widened more than CN, which relatively makes them a good bit cheaper if you're a cross-market player. So that's kind of what I'm looking for. Good points, Austin. Thanks for that. I mean, you make fair points. And, and another small strike against getting short spreads is, is the lack of a near-term catalyst. There just isn't much in February that I can point to to say, yeah, that, that's what's going to move spreads. That's what's going to move this trade. I think that changes in March and April. When the calendar turns to March, one, the, the, the banks right now, the commercial banks in Canada are in, are in blackout mode, so there's no issuance coming. That changes in March. And so when they issue debt, that, that does tend to weigh on spreads a bit. Uh, also in March, we're going to get, as, as we've mentioned before, term repos at the Bank of Canada are going to mature to the tune of, of $120 billion starting in March through March and April. So that, that'll mean a little bit less cash in the system. I think on the margin, that maybe puts a little bit of downward pressure on spreads because there's a little bit less support for, for cash in general, but that's another factor. And then again, back to the, the, the April QE tapering story. So timing is is tough on this one. I think I think a positive on this is that it is a, at least a, a positive carry trade and we are near the all-time wides on spread. So uh, I guess the question is, can, can we kind of move from there? I, we'll, we'll, we'll see over the next month. But uh, at this point, I think the Risks are skewed toward wanting to sell spreads. And, and again, we're, we like that trade at probably around these levels, I'd say. I prefer to see it a little bit wider. We have come in a little bit from the wise we've seen over the past few weeks, but definitely uh, our bias here is to sell spreads generally. Okay, right. Ben, so yeah, I think, you know, I've always liked in Canada averaging into trades because the weird can get weirder. Things can get stretched and stretched just a little bit more. So, so the arguments that Austin's making, I, I can't really take exception with them. They're factors in the market. I think it's more of a balance of risk, as you say. It's a timing thing. And the fact that this selling swap spreads is small positive carry, you can lock that in over the first three months. It gives you some cover there to sort of let these themes play out and, and, and build a position rather than jumping in right away. So yeah, it, it's two sides in a market, but I think for me, the balance of risks 
to the downside in spreads. I like it. Averaging in the, the Canadian way. I'd, <laughs> I'm going to change gears here. It's kind of related topic to some extent, but a, a little bit different, though. We can like them if we choose. Something that I've, I've been on about for a while now, since really December, when I came out with my uh, 2021 look ahead piece, and that's Canada-US cross-market spreads. And when I wrote that piece in December, pretty much immediately thereafter, Canada went very, very much bid and uh, outperformed the U.S. pretty pretty significantly over the following two to three weeks or so. Since kind of mid-January-ish, we've given back most of those gains, and, and Canada's traded pretty heavy, especially over the past couple of weeks or so, and we've cheapened up pretty pretty notably against the U.S., but I still like that theme. I still like that thesis. My thinking around being long Canada against the U.S. is, is really twofold. One, the issue inside of things is is pretty drastic. The compare and contrast between the two, between Canada and the U.S. is is pretty significant. In Canada, issuance on a net basis, on a, on a notional basis is rising. It's going to go from pretty net minus 15 billion or so in, in the current fiscal year, which ends March 31st. And then next year, assuming my thoughts on, on QE are right and the bank tapers a few times through the course of the year, net issuance, net notional issuance will be about plus 20 billion or so. So you're, a net move of, of 35 billion or so, a net increase of 35 billion or so in, in issuance. I would note though that on a DVO1 basis, it's actually declining probably about 20 million in 01 or so into the 70, 75 million in 01 range from, from 90 plus beforehand. So that that's one aspect. And, and, and the Canada side, I mean, issuance is going up, not all that much. In the U.S., issuance is, is, is going to skyrocket. Our U.S. strategy team has issuance rising about $1.7 trillion this year, net issuance. And, and that's that, that $1.7 trillion comes from last year or, or is a big increase over last year's net negative, about $400 billion in issuance. So the swing there is, is over $2 trillion versus the swing in Canada, which is, I mean, $20, $30, 30000000000 call it. And not all that big when all is said and done, especially on a DVO one basis, it's actually going down in Canada. So from an issuance perspective, from a supply demand basics, there's just going to be significantly more supply in the U.S. than in Canada. And that we'll see how that plays out over the course of the year. But I mean, you got to assume that uh, benefits Canada over time. The other side of my being long Canada thesis is, is just in, in a risk on environment. Canada tends to outperform. The U.S. historically has a higher CPI profile. And they have a higher potential growth profile. And so between those two, that suggests that you get longer term rates higher in the U.S. than in Canada. That's, that's been the theme for, I mean, really, really forever. And I don't see why that's going to change. And on the inflation side, especially, the Fed has said they're average inflation targeting, which means, I mean, I don't really know what it means other than they'd like to see inflation above target for an undisclosed amount of time. How high above target? Well, I don't know that either. So all I know is they want higher inflation. I'm don't believe the Bank of Canada is going in the same direction. They are going to stick kind of with what they have with their flexible inflation targeting. Uh, they might loosen that a little bit to emphasize the 1% to 3% band a bit more to give them more wiggle room. But I don't think they're going to kind of welcome whole hog above target inflation on any kind of consistent basis. I, I, I just The policy the bank currently has has worked too well for them to make any massive changes. And that that's pretty much what we heard from uh, one of the Bank of Canada deputy governors last week, and any changes will, will probably be incremental at most. And so, I mean, with central banks still providing all that easy money and 
fiscal authorities looking to put in more stimulus wherever they can, especially in the U.S. I see no reason for risk not to remain bid through the course of the year. There's got to be speed bumps. We might be going through one of them now. I, I'm not really sure. I mean, the vaccination speed bumps definitely don't help. But I think overall, risk stays bid, at least through the first half. And so I think that that's why you want to be long Canada against the U.S. at this point. And Austin, you have any thoughts on, on that trade? You like it? You dislike it? I mean, you know, I like it. Um, we've worked on it a lot together. Your idea, not taking anything away, but I think it's a smart, specifically adding a credit component to the trade, I think is really sharp. So either being, I mean, for liquidity point, if you want, being long Ontario in, in Canada dollar versus US on the other side, it's something that we've had uh, very nice conversations with clients about. You can turbocharge that trade even a little bit more if you want to add an energy kicker on and go straight into Alberta. One of the things that's interesting is that the size of these probably markets is substantial. So it's it's easy to get decent clips um, in secondary trading or even new issue from uh, from the provinces. So it's a flow trade with a credit component and you're able to get decent size. I think it I think it's it's a nice trade structure. I, I would agree. I, I, I like the Alberta side of thing. I think that that's interesting. I mean if you it's a risk on trade in general and you want to turbocharge the risk. You move from Ontario to Alberta, you get you get more more pickup and, and spread and carry, and there, there's more room for that to narrow if you're a believer. And oil prices moving up over the past, I don't know, few weeks or so, and, and they've been kind of relentlessly bullish lately, I think more than anybody thought. It definitely adds to that thesis a little bit. Pete, any thoughts on this? Sure. I like sort of thematically, intellectually speaking, it's always been easier for me to agree with a long Canada short US than the other way around. Not that they, of course, can't both be the right trade at the right time, but just from a size of the debt market, the demand for duration that is just always there in Canada, there isn't enough of it around. And the sort of competitive advantage when you talk about basis trades and 10-year rates, where, where should the break even be Canada versus U.S. On a, on a competitive advantage basis? And Canada rates probably need to be lower than the U.S. So from that side of the market, it, make, it makes sense for me. And the locations here are pretty good if you go back the last five years. So that sort of stacks up. It jives for me. We have broad agreement here. Listeners, feel free to email me with your uh, rebuttals. And I know there are some, but uh, I think the uh, the risk reward lines up pretty nicely, especially given the underperformance in Canada over the past uh, couple of weeks or so. As we approach kind of what could be kind of the lows in, in US 10s, maybe toward 1% or so, I think that that's definitely where you really want to be taking a very close look at this and and, and maybe get uh, very, very much aggressive on, on that front. One aspect of the trade that I didn't mention that would also be supportive, at least near term, is the pace of vaccinations and the impact of that on the macro outlook. And so unfortunately for Canada, and, and, and I am a resident of Canada, so unfortunately for me, I guess, <laughs> the pace of vaccination in Canada is... Inordinately slow, unfortunately slow. I mean, call it what you want. You can use more colorful language if you wish, but uh, not not on here. And that puts Canada at a serious disadvantage from a macro perspective. The, the, the pace, of, I mean, we only have about a million vaccine doses put in people's arms. So that that's not people, but doses. So we vaccinate a little less than a million people versus significantly more than that in the US and in the UK. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll let Pete and Austin talk about those those two things. But for Canada, the delay on the vaccine front means that the macro economy is likely going to struggle rebounding from, from where we are at present. And if anything, it means that restrictions are going to last a little bit longer in Canada. I know that the UK is also locked down right now and, and Canada, most of Canada is actually unwinding their lockdowns currently as, as cases are falling pretty much anywhere. 
which shouldn't be a huge shock given our, our, our proximity or, or now distance from Christmas and New Year's. But this is a clear downside risk for Canada on a relative basis. And, and so that should be supportive of Canadian rates, the Canadian rate complex in general over the coming kind of weeks and months. For those that, that haven't seen it, most of the Canadian contracts for vaccinations really kick into effect in, in, on April 1st. Uh, the government didn't think we'd approve the vaccines before then. Oops. And so whatever we're getting now is kind of negotiated after the fact. The bigger contracts are, are in place for April 1. So things will pick up starting then, but that's still two months away. And in the meantime, the US is going a million per day. And I'm not really sure what the UK is doing, but they're also well well ahead of the game. So we're, we're on like 500K a day. Sorry to jump in there, but that's like in a country that's like, you know, what are we, uh, fifth of the size? Like You're double Canada. <laughs> You're double Canada. Yeah. 668 or 70 odd million in the UK versus 300 and some million in the US. Yeah. Versus, versus 38 million in Canada. So, I mean, I'm, uh, you can't see me on the, on the podcast, but I'm shaking my head when Pete says they're doing a half a million per day and Canada's in like the thousands or, or maybe the tens of thousands, but we're nowhere near where we need to be. So Pete, why don't you, why don't you jump in? Where, where's the UK? I mean, I guess they're doing better. So we are doing better, but the takeaway for me, we talked about this earlier, is, you know, I don't know, maybe it's an emotional hedge, but but cautious. Because what you see here is even even if we've seen it in Israel, we've seen it here, where they're doing pretty good clip at these vaccinations. I think at time of recording, it must be about 13 million we've vaccinated. And, and at the current rates, we're going to have all the over 50s vaccinated by May. And yet we're still in full lockdown because... The, the hospital beds are still being taken up. They always run pretty hot in the winter anyway. You know, these, these levels, the cases fall, the deaths fall, but the hospital capacity stays high. It, it lingers. It takes a long time to come down. So, so even when jabs are going in the arms, just like, you know, almost everything else in, in the pandemic, things take longer now than maybe we, we hope or want them to. So this is showing us a way out and we're seeing the right results. But just the idea that, you know, Keep a lid on it a bit more. The governments are going to, are being cautious, and it may take just a little bit longer for this rebound to happen than maybe some people would hope. And and that's not to say it's not coming, and not to say it won't be very very strong. Because I think the other lesson that we've gone through three lockdowns, four I I forget we change the rules all the time, um, but we've had periods in the middle where where we weren't locked, and then there is an explosion of of life again, and there is there is a rebound. So. It is there, but I take a message of caution, just like knock on wood. Maybe it's the emotional hedge, but it, it might take a bit longer than we hope. Austin, how are things developing in the U.S.? The U.S. has seemingly caught a stride. I think over the last uh, seven days, we're averaging over 1.5 million doses a day. Sorry, Ben. With 44 million or so doses administered, those are just single use, not people vaccinated or anything like that. But again, you're spot on, Peter, but... You know, there's a caveat here. We're still estimating around nine months to get to 75% of people vaccinated with two doses. So we still have a decent runway. We've discussed, though, that we probably are able to pick up steam a lot faster than that because as the older generations are vaccinated, uh, hospital usage should decline rapidly, which should get a lot of people out of their house but uh, or their houses. But, you know, that there's still going to be a nice timeline for that as well. So uh, yeah, uh, my my view, and then you can write this down, February 10th, late afternoon, when much of the older population is vaccinated, and by older, I really just mean those those most at risk, so call it 60 years old and older, 
and the most vulnerable in society are, are vaccinated, I think things change pretty materially from pretty much every perspective. So I don't think we should be hanging our hat on on 60 or 70 or 80 percent rates of vaccination. I think it's it's who's vaccinated. Uh, and ho- hopefully that'll be the focus of the government uh, as, as we move forward here. But that, that's how I view things. Running up on time here. So before we uh, conclude, gentlemen, can you give our listeners your top trade ideas at the moment? Pete, I'm going to ask you to go first because I think I know what you want to say. Well, I don't know. I get to try this a couple of times, right? Because try as many times as you want. I, <laughs> you can just say five-year spreads, and that's why I'll wait you first because Austin's got something different. So I'd like to the theme. I do think five-year spreads. I think if I, I, I obviously that's what we let off with, and I, I didn't just take that side of the trade on the flip of a coin. I, I do like that side of the trade. So clearly, I'm there, and and I think uh, the the other one that would come to mind is Canhow versus Provis. Just some some just at the right locations as those Canhows keep getting beat up. You know, they're not issuing more in 2021. They're issuing less, and the provincials have got to issue more. They've got de- you know budget deficits to fund, and there's still the fallout of all of the spending that that we've done to to keep everything afloat. So just looking for opportunities where you can switch in and out of those credit ladders for me when can I cheapen up, skidding along there and coming back? Because I, I, I t- as I mentioned before to you, I you know can how versus Govy for me it's the same issue where you just get some spread. So uh, I, I like that trade from a couple different angles. All right, cool, Austin. How about you? Yep. You know me, Ben. I like the front end. I like the widgets. And we actually have a new widget in Canada. We have a new two-year contract, uh, futures contract, the CV. Currently, it's the CVH1. And it's benchmarked off for the cheapest to deliver, I should say, is the Novi 22 Canada. And what I like about this contract is that it really highlights what's wrong with what the bank has done to the uh, front end and, and entire market in Canada by buying too much cash. It really highlights just how rich cash is and just how cheap OIS is. And I think that that's what's defining the Canada market right now. When you look at CV versus OIS, it trades at plus eight, which is to your cash, eight rich to OIS. Whereas TUOIS, which is very liquid or much more liquid, I should say, trades at 1.4 through, which is to your cash cheap to OIS. So you have about a 10 basis point swing on that. And so there's a few ways. I mean, the best thing you could probably do is is just sell this where you're selling cash and receiving OIS. If you don't want to do that, it's easy to dissect it. It really highlights that OIS is probably the cheapest and best thing to be received in Canada right now. And cash is probably the best thing to be sold or or short. So that's something that I like. All right. Thank you. Gentlemen, thank you for uh, joining me this week. Pete, thanks. I hope your uh, first experience with me was tolerable. (laughs) And Austin, thanks thanks for coming back. I hope to have you both again. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Ben. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. I hope you'll join me again for another episode. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. 
It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.